All right, everybody. Well, we are here. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, simulcast uh, on Facebook Live. This is episode 158. And our guest is Ryan LaPlante, which we're super excited about. I know a lot of you guys are excited about. Uh, he's in the mini window right now waving at you all. <laughs> uh, but but we'll, uh, we'll blow him up a little bit later. And also Jim Reed has joined us. Hey, Jim, welcome. Jim from Canada with the Pittsburgh hat on. So we're going to still <laughs> let that go. Uh, he said to just get used to it. So we're going to get used to it. Uh, but just a couple of housekeeping things before we get into the conversation with Ryan. As always, we are sponsored uh, by Running Aces Racetrack and Casino. And we also... Uh, last week, welcome Learn Pro Poker is one of our sponsors. So yep. pretty good timing with that deal, as you see the hat uh, that Ryan is showing off. Players of the Week at Running Aces, as always, we talk about this, the four people that are picking up some bonus lammers for their performance last week, Brandon Kelsenberg. All right, I'll say it, fly, Eagles fly. That's for you, Brandon. Uh, Ray Dickerson, Robert Carl, and Randall Prokowitz. Congrats, guys, on that deal. A couple of binks uh, by our members, Cheyenne Bhattacharya. Uh, won the $50 at Canterbury on November 29th. And just today, uh, I actually missed it, and I was pointed out to me, but Ben Gers uh, picked up the $35 tournament at Canterbury. So nice job to you guys for the Binks. A couple of other announcements. Uh, this Wednesday, as you guys know, uh, we're going to be doing our next hand history discussion that Chris Jones is leading. That's at 6.30 p.m. Central Time. Uh, members are welcome to join in on that conversation, and then we'll record that and put that out to our members as well. And our much, uh, our much looked forward to Poker Stars home game, uh, our monthly home game. Uh, I see Bluff Storini there smiling, uh, <laughs> smiling in the background. Uh, December 4th, that's Wednesday, 8 o'clock p.m. Central. We do a Poker Stars free home game. Anybody's welcome to, uh, to participate in that deal. Uh, you can go to rec.poker, get all the information there. Maria Ho, December 16th, she'll be on. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to lock her in for that date. Uh, she has confirmed, so uh, that'll be an exciting conversation as well. And then an update on our NFL Survivor Pool. We lost two people, which means we're down to three, and those are the folks that get to win the prizes. So uh, congrats to Kevin Kelsenberg, Alejandro Casas, and Tim Carroll for picking up the prizes. But they're going to play it out, man. They're going to play it out and see who our champion is at the end of the year. But just a ton of ways to connect. So please check out rec.poker for everything we have going on. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions at all. And with all of that uh, goodness, uh, that's just leading into our main story here, which is Ryan LaPlante is with us. So, Ryan, first of all, man, thanks for jumping on here. Thanks, Ryan, man. I really do appreciate it. It's great uh, to do this partnership with you guys, and it's great to be able to do this interview, uh, explain you know, to your viewers a bit about me. I mean, uh, you guys are based mostly out of Minnesota, right? So we are, I guess yeah. uh, some of your viewers might uh, have uh, might know who I am through my you know poker results, having grown up in Central Minnesota. You know, played at Canterbury, played at Running Aces back in the day. So I might be somewhat well known to your specific viewers, but still good to do this, and I really do appreciate being on. Absolutely. Now you were born in Brainerd, right? Is that with the least? Uh, so I grew up in Brainerd. Um, I was actually born in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. And then we moved to Royalton, Minnesota when I was, I'm going to say five. We lived there for uh, two years, lived in Little Falls for about a year. And then we moved to Brainerd and I essentially lived in Brainerd from eight to 18. And then went to college at University of Minnesota Duluth for about a year. And then uh, after, uh, after Black Friday, essentially moved back and forth between Canada, Mexico and Vegas and the Midwest for five to six years. And then uh, about four or five years ago, settled down in Las Vegas. Okay. And you're a young guy, right? You're like 30 yep. or so. Is that right? 29. 
29, not even 30 yeah. yet. Oh my goodness. And so, and Royalton is now I've gone through Royalton. Isn't that like kind of a quote unquote yeah, suburb like, of Little Falls kind of thing? I, Royalton <laughs> has like eight, 900 small. people. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. very small. It's like uh, 15, 20 minutes uh, south of Little Falls. And then Little Falls is like, I don't know, maybe 10 to 15,000 people, somewhere in that range. It's been a long time since I've actually been there. Uh, yeah. Like Ben, been there. Well, awesome. Well, for those of you who don't know Ryan, so there is a Minnesota connection, but yep. uh, you know, Jim, for example, is up in Canada. So there's plenty of folks around here that aren't from Minnesota, but if, if you don't know Ryan, you should. Uh, this guy, so he's not even 30. And I was looking up your hand in mob. I know you've had a ton of results, but I looked it up. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Like this guy's not even 30. And I know hand and mob isn't the who's of the muchness. It's not everything, but reported on there, you got 2.4 million in live earnings, another 1.8 million in online earnings. Uh, the live earnings include 54 World Series caches, including 11 last summer, about 1.1 million in World Series earnings. I looked at some of your big scores. Obviously, the one that most people know about, if they know of your career at all, is the 2016 bracelet. Yep. So you won the, you won the PLO bracelet. You also had a runner-up the next year in uh, the 1500 No Limit Hold'em PLO eight-handed. So 190K in 2016, 166K in 2017. And then your latest one, and I'm, I'm not really telling you this because you don't know this, right. but I think our listeners want to know. Um, so actually, just like four weeks ago, you won the PLO Poker Masters 10K buy-in for 186K. So yep. a lot of success at a young age. And I mean, you're just kind of the real deal. And I want to start kind of with the World Series of Poker bracelet. I know you probably talked mm. ad nauseum about this. <laughs> uh, but one of the things I want to touch on, in case our viewers don't know this, is you were like 26 years old at the time. Yep. And, you know, based on the reports, you weren't planning on giving a speech at all. Yeah. And then the Orlando shooting occurred. Yeah. And you changed your mind and you gave this mm -hmm. speech that was, it's not even two minutes long, but it was just incredibly compelling. And, mm -hmm. you know, you were challenging us to treat each other with love and respect. And mm -hmm. where I kind of want to start with that is now that three years have gone by, you know, and that's mm -hmm. sort of, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a big part of your career, a big part of your story, but right. it's three years ago, kind of what, I'd like to know kind of what's really sticking with you out of that experience of, you know, playing it, winning the bracelet, the, the, you know, the talk you gave and your acceptance kind of what's, what's still there for you as far as the big memory. I mean, it's still definitely very bittersweet, you know, having such an important, you know, part of my life, you know, I, you know, when I was, uh, you know, growing up in Brainerd and like doing tours and stuff for my parents, I dreamed of just playing the world series and winning a bracelet and, you know, to achieve something like that was so wonderful and amazing. But then the exact same night to have at the time, which still is one of the worst mass shootings in yeah. U.S. history and occur in a, you know, gay nightclub in Orlando was absolutely devastating. You know, I've been openly gay, you know, since I came out in 18 um, at the age of 18. And I've been openly gay in poker the entire length of my career. and. You know, I think that it's important when you do have some type of platform to be able to use that to, you know, even minorly try to make the world a slightly better place. And while many Americans and Canadians might think that, you know, we've made a lot of progress with gay rights, which we certainly have, it is still an important thing to be open about and to be public about because of how much discrimination that there still is in the USA and abroad. I mean, the USA, you can get fired for being openly gay in like 25 or 30 states. You know, it's still uh, 
actually illegal to be gay in like 40 or 50 countries. It's death penalty in like 30 countries. Um, and uh, for more a uh, local stat, something that might be a little bit surprising is, uh, so right now in the U.S., if you look at the major sports, there's about 10,000 professional athletes across football, hockey, uh, uh, baseball, you know, across like the major uh, basketball, across major sports, there's about 10,000 professionals. And statistically speaking, there should be at minimum 100 to 300 like openly GLBT players of some fashion of those sports. And there's currently zero, not one, Mm. which the reason why to me that that is a very compelling stat is because it is something that people, even in this modern day and age are still worried about how others perceive them and their sexuality, even if they are competing in something that is purely about their ability. It's about nothing else, just about how good of an athlete they are and what they can do for their team. Yet there's no one that's willing to be openly gay and be a player. And I guarantee you that there are many that there are many gay players across those sports. And the fact that there's no one that's willing to be out just shows how much fear there is among the GLBT community and how much discrimination that there is still publicly, even in countries like the USA and Canada. And while I'm very grateful for the amount of progress that we have made, you know, there being gay marriage, uh, federally legal in the U.S., you know, that gay people can now adopt kids in most states that, you know, we have made a ton of progress, but that there is still, you know, so much more that needs to be done. And, you know, when I won my bracelet, I, uh, I kind of view like the act of winning the bracelet by itself is enough that it speaks for itself that you don't need to like add anything to it you know if you want to do like a minor thank you for you know your friends and family for being supportive or something like that i'm all in favor of that and you know i personally just wasn't that interested in doing something like that just because you know they know how much i appreciate them and you know for being supportive and that type of thing but you know the morning that i woke up after winning my bracelet when i you know saw what happened at the pulse shooting I knew that it was important for me to say, you know, something and that, you know, even if me saying something only made, you know, a difference to a single person that to me that that would be enough. And that is, you know, worth saying something about. And, you know, obviously looking back at it, it still is a very cool accomplishment, but I will also always have the memory, you know, tied to the pulse shooting. Um, and especially also being less than a mile away from the Las Vegas shooting as well, you know, having these types of things have such an impact on my life just makes me so much more aware of the impact that they have on society and, you know, being able to have a voice, you know, to some degree, I am very thankful and grateful for, and will continue to do my best to you know, try to have a positive impact, even if it's only in, you know, the poker world, you know, I care deeply about the game and the industry and its long-term growth and impact. And I plan on continuing to do my best to be a positive influence in it. That's, that's so well said. And I think, you know, I just want to appreciate you for your, your courage on that. I'm sure it's not been an easy road. And I think, you know, whenever anybody, whatever the situation is, whenever anybody is somehow 
not able to be fully themselves. Mm-hmm. I just grieve. Uh, I, th- I think right. a lot of us just grieve for that, no mm-hmm. matter what the situation is, no matter what our beliefs are. And for you, especially in Northern Minnesota, I'm sure that was very difficult yeah, not uh, to grow up in this situation. Uh, you know, but, but you, you've come through that and I'm sure not un- unscathed. Uh, but but you're a voice for the people that that need voice and mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And I, I appreciate your courage on that. And I would encourage Thank anybody, you. whatever your situation is, whether it's similar to Ryan's or different, you know, be mm-hmm. yourself. And as you challenge us, you know, just love mm-hmm. and respect each other. Right. It's not that complicated. <laughs> you know, the and, politics gets complicated, but loving yeah. and respecting each other isn't right. that complicated. And that's one of the best things about poker. And honestly, in part, why I love the game so much. You know, for the most part, playing poker is just about having the money and willingness to sit down and play, you know, like the poker masters events, you know, that I recently played it and did well. And, you know, it, there wasn't any barrier to entry outside of just, did you have the money and were you willing to, you know, there's no other politics around it. No other, who are you? What are you? You know, it's just, you have the money, you buy in, you sit down and you play and no one questions that there's no, you know, you name it in those events and you have it in terms of players and people, and especially when you're talking about something like the world series, you know, there is no barrier to entry there outside of just having the money and sitting down. And especially these days with binds going even as low as like $365 all the way up to 1 million, you know, it's a very accessible thing and you get all walks of life winning and playing and, you know, playing and even winning in these events. And the fact that it is just a very, you know, laissez-faire attitude about everything. You know, poker players, po- poker professionals, especially in general, are just a very open-minded and accepting group of people. And, you know, the fact that they care more about just who you are as a competitor and who you are ethically as a person than anything says a lot about the industry and game as an overall whole. And I'm glad that that is still the focus of the game and the industry. And also in part why I kind of prefer tournaments to cash games. You know, cash games can be a little bit more of a aggressive and predatory and kind of political thing, especially these days as some of the higher stakes games that are maybe more uh, privately focused. So with something like tournaments, you know, just being able to plop down the money, sit down and grind, you know, to me that is a very, it's a very cool thing and very unique to our age and industry to just be able to, if you want to work, you can just go there and play and battle and compete. And to me, that is a wonderful thing. So it's interesting. So you, you've got this, the poker environment, which is highly competitive, right? We're all trying right. to, we're trying to take everybody's chips. Like we're trying to get every mm-hmm. single chip in play yet at the same time, it has this sort of unifying effect, which you're speaking to, which is, which is interesting. Like you said, the world series, you know, and, and anywhere you go, you know, you sit down and, you know, there's people, some are gay, some are straight, some are black, some are white, some are Republican, some are Democrat, you know, right. but at the table, you're all just kind of, you're, poker you're, players. You're, right. you're a poker player. And I, I think that is a, a beautiful sort of message of unity, even in the midst of we're all trying to crush right. each other's souls and, and, <laughs> and three, but the heck out of people. So that's an interesting thing. Well, well, anyway, thanks for that. Let me, I'm going to shift gears a little bit just because we only right. have seven hours with you. So we got to <laughs> limit our time a little, a little bit here. But uh, anyway, I just want to start with that because that's, that's been an important part of your story mm-hmm. and an important part of my story as a, as a growing as a human, as a poker player, your mm-hmm. story has intersected with that. And I've appreciated that greatly. Uh, but I, I want to kind of get back to, you know, you being this young guy, you've got a lot of great results. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're a very smart guy. You could have done a lot of things with your life. And so I'm kind of curious, like how, how you got into poker and how you realized poker was like, something you could do were you like this prodigy or no, you know, are you a student of, the, student of the game or like how did how did this even 
start? So um, I started like most people around my age group with the moneymaker boom. Okay. You know, when Chris Moneymaker won, that was what, 2002, three? Uh, you might remember it. I have a bad memory. Uh, <laughs> well, see, so you're Googling. See, the, yeah. these, these millennials, they just, they just Google yeah, 2003. it. 2003. Okay. So <laughs> okay. Moneymaker won in 2003. So I was 13 at the time. And oh, obviously that's like the start. You're killing me, brother. So obviously that's the start of like the moneymaker boom. And, yeah. you know, when, with, with the start of that, you know, lots of kids my age in school were like into poker. You know, we were watching it on ESPN. There was WPT on television as well. Uh, you know, it was definitely like any time that ESPN was like, you know, sh- showing the World Series, you know, that they were launching new episodes, we would all be talking about it. Hmm. And so uh, when we would do like sleepovers and stuff, instead of just like, playing football and, you know, doing that kind of stuff. We were also, or like Halo or, you know, playing video games or whatever. We were also just playing poker, playing like, you know, one cent, two cent or two cent, five cent and doing like five and $10 buy-in tournaments. And I was actually efficient in those games. I was bad. (laughs) I was very bad. And, um, you know, as I got older, I got more and more into competitive gaming. Um, I played Halo somewhat competitively. A um, couple other games that I played at fairly high levels. And um, when I turned 18, or just before turning 18, I stumbled upon this little poker forum called 2 Plus 2 Forums. And the moment I started reading you know, information on there, learning that poker was, you know, purely a game of skill, that there's math involved. And I've always been kind of a math and logic oriented person. But once I learned like the type of math and thinking that went into the game, I immediately started turning into a winning player. And, you know, I always needed some type of competitive outlet. And before poker for me, it was competitive gaming. And once I re got into poker and realized how much there was to learn about the game and how much money I could make playing it, that's when I switched my grind from being mostly video games to being mostly poker. You know, I was playing micro stakes on poker stars and slowly grinding up bankrolls. And then I got my first backing deal when I was like 19 and pretty much never looked back. So there was never a, a time in there where it's like, I'm going to go to college, get a real job. It was just kind of right from well, gaming into poker. My, uh, my year in college, so I, as I said before, well, I went to, to UMD. Yeah, yeah, I went to University of Minnesota Duluth. Uh, that was actually the year that the uh, football team won the national championships when they had their undefeated season. So it was a pretty cool year to be there uh, with the amount of hype around that. Uh, but uh, my year in my year there at school was spent hanging out with friends and playing poker. And actually the uh, friends and stuff that I was hanging out with, uh, we had started a student group and through that student group, we also started poker leagues. So we had a like every Sunday, whatever poker league that ran for like, you know, I think three to four months where the overall winner got X amount. And then on top of that, we were also like doing cash games and that kind of stuff. So essentially my entire year of college, instead of going to classes, I just <laughs> played poker and hung out with friends and played live poker. And so, so I essentially that, went to school for what I do now. Nice. Exactly. You went to, yeah, you went to school for poker. That, that's exactly. Not, so, so that was primarily online then when you were playing, I mean, yeah, you're playing some of the small live stuff, but then at some right. point you transitioned to live. Was that a, a natural thing or was it an intentional? So I only more recently transitioned mostly to live. Oh. Um, I spent, so after Black Friday hit, uh, so April 2011, um, it was actually, I wasn't 21 yet. I was a month before turning 21 and I was living in Wisconsin, um, living with family. And I, uh, you know, when that hit, I 
didn't know what I was going to do because it was a month before I could even play live poker in Wisconsin. You know, you had to be 21 to play live in mm -hmm. Wisconsin since they didn't have, uh, or at least at the non-Indian casinos. And uh, I didn't know what to do. So I spent like three weeks killing time studying. And then I started playing live at a Potawatomi in Wisconsin, play mostly two, five cash. And then, a but, uh, so I thought that I wasn't going to do the world series that year, but a buddy of mine approached me. I was like, Hey, I'm going to have like a spare bed in a, in a hotel room. If you just want to stay with me for the length of the summer, you're more than welcome to split the hotel costs and that way you can play a full summer package. And I was like, well, I guess I'm <laughs> playing the world series. So I sold a big package and the uh, first like two, three weeks went terribly. Like I went like 0 for 20, didn't even have a min cash, just straight brick. And obviously was getting like kind of disappointed, but then I finally got a min cash in a uh, little min cash, like a one K. And then the very next tournament I played, I final table and uh, it was a $1,500 buy-in with couple thousand entries and first place was like five hundred fifty thousand dollars so at 21 years old and playing on my first world series final table for 550k Jeez. and uh i went into the final table i was nine out of nine and uh before we hit eight-handed i was chip lead hmm. so i went to one out of nine and then i took eighth. <laughs> <laughs> keep your hands inside the car at all times yep <laughs> but, and but, uh, we'll talk honestly, about that for a quick second i know you're gonna but, yeah. but i'm really curious about that like were you hooked on live poker before the World Series or was it just something to do? Did the World Series really just hook you or were you already kind of like so there? I would say before, like, I would say before, like, really playing my first World Series schedule, that was more of an online player. Yeah. But when I played that full schedule, I just, I really enjoyed it. I just really, truly enjoyed it. But I didn't start to become more live focused until, like, uh, two years ago. So I was still mostly an online grinder for the next seven years. Um, mostly just because, you know, when you play poker professionally, most of playing poker professionally is about putting in volume, especially as a mm -hmm. tournament player. And realistically speaking, it is just way, way, way easier to play online volume than it is to play live volume. You know, for live, even like the biggest grinders of the year, guys like, uh, um, like, uh, Ari Angle is like one of the main names that comes to mind. Even he probably only plays like 250 to 350 entries in a year, mm -hmm. which sounds like a lot, and it technically is a lot. <laughs> right. But when you're talking about the amount of variance involved in tournament poker, it really is very, very minor. Um, give you an idea, over the course of my career, I've gone on many, many, many 1,000-plus game downswings. That's just mm -hmm. normal. Mm -hmm. You know, losing money for a thousand entries is normal when you're talking about these really large fields and not very large edges. You know, the variance is just really, really, really brutal. And because that's the case, that means it's kind of a necessity as a tournament player to play online. Um, or, you know, if you are playing a live focus schedule that you do stuff like, you know, when you're traveling to play live series, you're playing satellite side events, main events, and cash games as a means to keep having income coming in. Because if you're not playing a ton of volume, then variance is just going to entirely dictate your year to year results, which is still honestly, mostly going to be somewhat true for any tournament player. Unless you play a ridiculous amount of games online, your year-to-year -year profits are going to be dictated as much by variance as it is by your skill in any given event. Especially when you're talking about, you know, even if you're someone like, say, a $50 average buy-in player who plays between, like, 22s and 200s, and 
you know, the top end of your buying range, those 200s, if they're only like 10% of your buy-ins, which is going to be pretty typical, but you just run very poorly in those and run very well in the 22s right. and run okay in the rest of the stuff, that could be the difference between you being plus 100 on the year or plus 50 on the year or plus 200 on the year. You know, let's say you make a major $215 buy, you final table Sunday million. And, you know, the difference between of ninth and first is like $150,000. That could be the difference of your whole year profits. And, you know, the fact that like tournaments are so heavily dictated by just year to year and just variance in general means that grinding online is by far the most consistent way to make a living. It just by far is. And because of that, that meant that the main way for me to easily be, well, easily be able to provide for myself and my family was to make sure that I was grinding online, which is why I spent essentially most of 2011 to 2015 outside of the US or just constantly traveling back and forth between Canada, the Midwest, Vegas, Mexico, you name it, just to make sure that I could keep playing good online volume. Um, and now, you know, once I moved to Vegas, so we moved to Vegas more officially, uh, I want to say about four and a half years ago. And once we moved here, it was much more realistic for me to be able to play some online and play mostly live and do things like coaching and other things as a means to supplement my income. You know, once I could supplement my income enough, then it became a lot more viable for me to be able to just do what I enjoy and hope I did well. And, you know, have enough income coming in from other stuff where if I did poorly playing tournaments, it wasn't going to like inf really impact in our lifestyle. We might not have as much as we would want, but we always got by essentially, even when I was running very poorly. Right. I'm, I'm going to shift gears a little bit to talk a little more strategy and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, this is so good. I'm, I'm curious now, you've done a lot of, I know you've done obviously a ton online, a ton live. You've done yep. a lot of coaching and now you got the mm -hmm. new website, which will We'll talk a bit about there, but yep. I'm just kind of, you know, most of our audience is recreational players, which means everything from people just playing bar leagues to people playing yep. up to maybe 1100 or so somewhere in that range. So it's, it's a wide swath, right. a lot of yep. live players. And I'm curious now, as you've got this body of knowledge from working with so many people mm -hmm. and all of the experience at the tables, like what, what are those still those kind of those biggest pockets of mistakes that you see most recreational players making? Like what are those you know, what are those two or three things that you're just like, this continues mm -hmm. to be sort of one of the major division lines between, you know, the people that just can't get over the hump and the people that have made it over the hump? Um, I would say like the most common mistake I see most players make is having a limping range in spots where they're never supposed to open limp ever, like ever, ever, ever open limp. Uh, great, great example is just like, uh, honestly, 25 plus big blinds deep effective from cutoff or earlier, you just should never open limp ever. You could be the second limper, you, you can over limp, but you should never be the first limper ever in those spots. Um, and even just having an open limping range, it weakens, it like it causes so many issues in the way each of their other ranges look like in terms of like opening that it just, they're just going to make such massive errors. And it's very easy for a professional to take advantage of someone who even has a limping range. And some of the people watching this who might say, hey, I can limp pretty well in some of these spots. It, it just it screws your ranges to such a ridiculous degree that unless you're a bot that can perfectly build this stuff out to, to a decent degree, it's just going to be incredibly difficult to make nearly as good of decisions as if you just had an opening range. Um, 
One of the other issues is most people open way too tight. Although it's not necessarily as big a mistake because most people's post-op games are incredibly weak. But if you have a solid foundation in your flop game, you should be very comfortable with opening uh, close to what GTO suggests pre-flop. If you're a very uncomfortable post-flop, then playing on the tighter side of things is very reasonable as it gives yourself easier post-flop decisions. Um, but that being said, if you're going to open tighter and you're going to three-bet tighter, you also need to open larger. Hmm. And you need to three-bet larger as a general rule of thumb. Most recreational players three-bet way too small. Um, this is also one of, I would say, like, the third most common mistake that people make is a their re-raise sizes pre-flop are way, way, way too small. Um, back in the day, people thought that, it, like, by back in the day, I mean as early as, like, the early 2000s and 10s, like, to the late, oh, like, 08, 09, 10, 11, 12, it's pretty common for there to be an open and then a three bet to, like, let's say there's an open to 10, the three bet would be to, like, between 22 and 27. And, like, 27 would be, like, a large three bet. These days, let's say there's an open to 10 and you're playing, say you're playing a, a 1-3 game and the typical opens to 10 bucks and you're playing 500 effective. These days, a typical 3-bet would be at that stack depth would be to 35 in position and like 50 out of position. And hmm. most people are still 3-betting between like 25 to 30. And out of position, they might 3-bet to 30 to 35 instead of going to the 45, 50. You can even go larger in some of these spots, going as large as like 60. So does, in like does a that tournament apply to, days, to tournaments as well as cash? Is that the same? Yes, it definitely. Um, if anything, it applies more so to tournaments because with tournaments, you generally have an ante, and the ante makes uh, just gives the, the opener against a 3-bet much better odds to call. So them giving getting better odds means they're much more inclined to call, which means as a three better, you should be going larger to discourage their calls. You know, even if you have a very strong overall three bet range, your three bet range in general still just wants to put in a lot of chips, either to make sure you're not giving them good direct odds and implied odds, or just to build pot with your very strong hands. And your bluffs all want to go really large as well. So let's say you're playing one 200 with a 200 ante and you're playing 20k effective starting stack. So it's 100 big blinds deep, one two with an ante. Uh, and the opener goes to 500 in mid position and you have the button. Most people would three bet here to between like 12 and like 1400, maybe going 1500. When from a fundamental standpoint, you want to go minimum 1500, but even going as large as 2000 here is very reasonable. And if you're out of position, if you're the small blind or the big blind, you want to go at minimum 2,000, but going as large as like 2,500 to even 3,000 is very reasonable. So going five to six X out of position when you're very, very deep and going three and a half to four and a half X in position when you are very deep. Now the shallower effective you get, you can go smaller and smaller and smaller because your opponent's getting less direct odds and implied odds, most importantly. The implied odds that they get is is a pretty important factor to what types of hands they can call with because that generally just means overall odds they will be getting on various flop and turn decisions are drastically impacted by implied odds. So let's say you're playing that 1-200, but instead of 20K starting stack, it's 10K starting stack, so you're half as deep. Then when the open is to 500, the in-position 3-bet be, can be to around 3X, so it can be to around 1,500. But the out-of-position 3-bet still needs to be about 45 to 5X, so 2,200, 2,500. And most people are 3-betting like 25 to 3X at most, not even 
counting the fact that they're out of position. So um, when I'm playing in these really soft live tournaments, so for instance, Win right now has a good series going on. They have a, a $400, 100K, and then, uh, which I won't be able to play busy with this today, but uh, I'll be playing a, a 600 there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 600, 250K. And chances are my starting table is going to have one to two like local pros of some kind that I noticed to a decent degree. Um, maybe uh, one or two just like local regulars that can be a varying ability. And then there will be like three or four complete recreational players. Hmm. And because people don't call correctly against opens, because they three bet either incorrectly or way too small or way too tight or both, and because they uh, just defend very poorly, um, my early position opening range is going to be between uh, 25 and 35% of hands in early position. Hmm. And on the button, I'm generally going to be opening 100%. Cutoff, I'm generally going to be opening between 70 and 90%. And the thing is, is I could tell my table that I'm doing this and still <laughs> mostly get away with it because they're going to adjust in the incorrect fashions. Mm-hmm. Most people, when they're dealing with this like hyper-aggressive young player such as myself they tend to just call too often. Right. They are going to like three bet me. They're going to three bet me way too tight and way too small. They aren't adjusting in anywhere near the correct type of fashion. And on top of that, the post-flop decisions they make, they make such egregious errors that it doesn't even matter if their post-flop decisions drastically improve or if their pre-flop decisions drastically improved against me. The errors they're making post-flop are so large that I can still get away with playing in this style to some degree. Obviously not to the same degree if they're three-betting me well and loosening up a lot, but still to a decent degree. Um, The issue with playing this style is that if you don't have an incredibly fundamentally strong post-flop game, if you don't know exactly how you're abusing your opponent's pre-flop and post-flop mistakes, it's going to turn into a very very losing uh, style. It really does require for you to have a very, very fundamentally strong game. And that's kind of like the whole point of why learning game theory, optimal decision-making in poker is very important. It's not so you can play like the robot. You know, your goal isn't to know what a GTO range is and then just follow it blindly. Because, well, that's better than not really having any foundation for your game. It's nowhere near as good as understanding how your opponents are deviating from this and what you can do to make the most out of it. Um, give you an idea. Uh, a GTO opening range and early position on 100 big blinds is 14% of hands. So, uh, and a reply to that opening range. So if I open an EP on 14% and it folds to the hijack and I'm also in the hijack and I want to three bet myself, then I'm going to three bet to uh, three bet around like seven to 8% of hands. And, not just percentage of hands that I choose, but the sizing that I choose and the frequencies that I choose each of these hands are very, very important in terms of making sure that I'm playing at a high level. I can't just like open a 14% range. I have to open the right type of 14% range and then three bet the right type of three bet range. And the reason why knowing these is important isn't so I can just follow it blindly. It's because when someone opens an early position and I go, what, per- what percentage of hands is this person opening? And they're opening 5%, then the reply to that means when I three bet them, I just have a strong value hand. Mm-hmm. And I just call a lot versus them. 
And when they're, instead of opening 14% in early position, they're opening 25%, like I tried to get away with, <laughs> then my reply to that is to three bet that person a lot more than 7%. Instead of just three betting them 7%, I'm going to three bet like 10% or 12%. And if someone's really trying to abuse where they're opening, you know, when I get kind of ridiculous and I'm opening 35%, then I should just be three betting them like 20% of hands or something like that. But what's, instead what happens is, most people, they just open way too tight. So then I get to three bet them strong linear for value. And when they four bet me, their four bet range is almost always just aces and kings. And I can just fold everything to the four bet. And I, I don't lose sleep over it. It's like, oh, right. okay, you just had aces or kings. Sweet. Great. Next yep. hand. Three bet again. Yep. <laughs> and the main reason why uh, them like three betting way too tight is a monstrous error against a loose opener is mostly because so poker is about. Poker is a game of equities and poker is a game of equity denial, like especially tournaments. Sermons is all about equity denial. That is like just the nature of, ha- of what the game really truly is at its core. It's purely about equity denial. Your goal is to get your opponent to make mistakes via not realizing the equity of their hands. And so one of the, or just them just making those mistakes and you just taking advantage of it, either or picking up the loss, the drop that equity or getting them to not realize the equity that they should have. So the way that I I do a lot of this equity denial is I open really, really, really loose. And what I'm doing by opening super loose is most people, they're just going to three bet me with their three bet range. They're going to go, this kid's opening. This is what I need to three bet with. And they just have this in their mind of what they should be three betting. They just view hands as three bet hands or as calling hands. So to someone who is uh, an okay three better, they're just going to three bet me tens plus ace queen plus, and then they might mix in a couple bluffs like an ace five suited, a you know nine eight suited type hands, and they'll just three bet me with that no matter what. And that's not an awful strategy, and it's an easy strategy. But what they're not realizing is by sticking to that strategy, which is too tight. And by also sticking to a pre-fault calling strategy that is also too tight, that I'm essentially picking up the equity that they're leaving on the table for me. So I'm just hoovering it up via opening super loose. And then for post-flop, the main mistakes that I take advantage of is when I see bet, people continue way too tight versus it. But most importantly, they don't check raise anywhere near enough. Mm -hmm. So a typical check raise uh, percent that most people are going to use as a total rule of thumb is going to be between like three and 5%, maybe like six as a, as a general population average. And live poker is going to be closer to 3%. Online poker is going to be closer to 6%. The actual percentage that people should be three betting as an overall average is like 16 to 17%. Hmm. And hmm. there are situations where they should be check raising closer to like 20 to 25%, like a button versus big blind specifically. There are yeah. lots of board textures where the big blind should be check raising closer to 20 to 25%. But early position versus big blind defend, they should only be check raising like 5 to 10%. So it's, it's always situational based. It's always board texture based. It's always stacked up base. But all these factors can drastically impact these things. But the most important thing is when someone's supposed to check raise me 20% of the time, but they're check raising me 3% of the time, yeah. that means You're printing all money. of these hands that I'm betting with that I'm not supposed to be able to bet with, I get to bet with like these really non-equity hands. Like there's no backdoor hope and a prayer, just nothing. Just absolute napkins. I get to bet it for a fifth pot or a quarter pot mm-hmm. and they make money because my opponents, they might, my opponent could call me perfectly, 
But if they're check raising at 3% when they're supposed to check raise at 20%, that means I get to bet with a napkin profitably, like actual zero equity. I get to bet and make money on it. And that's where I make money and where most pros make money. We, we're not making money because, you know, we're playing the game at this theoretical perfect level or because we're geniuses or anything like that. It's because our opponents make massive mistakes and the better you understand the way the theory works, you have a better idea as to what types of mistakes someone is making. You know, if you don't know what a baseline decision is, then how do you know if someone's too tight or too loose in a spot? Right. Where do you, what do you base that on? Too tight, too loose compared to what? Like, they're really, when you don't have any true ideas of what theory looks like. Now, I'm not saying that I or anyone even knows truly what GTO looks like. We, we don't. We, we honestly, we have a vague inkling of what it could be based off of what information we currently have. Even the, I guess the, our closest guess to GTO was, uh, the heads up bot that beat, um, the, the, like the one that actually beat them, not the one that statistically beat them, the one that actually ran profitable that was built on this super high end learning software. The thing took a, a supercomputer like an actual true supercomputer to operate and run. That might be our best guess as to what GTO looks like. And that thing just played itself infinite hands. The calculators and stuff that we have current access to, they're just that, they're calculators. And they're very limited by the amount of technology that we currently have to operate them. So give you an idea, the way these calculators work is, let's say you put in an opening range, you put in a defend range, and then you put in a flop. And then on the flop, you want the opening range to, to have different bet sizings. Right now, the bet sizings that you can do, let's say you did three flop sizings and then three turn sizings and three river sizings, a small, medium, and large size for each, plus then uh, checking as well. That means you have four trees for each, each decision point. You have four flop decisions, check small, medium, large, four turn, check small, medium, large, and then four river, check small, medium, large. So then you get to the river with four times four, and then those get split into four extra ranges. So you getting to the river with 64 different uh, trees, 64 trees that are possible. Uh, it's just four times four. And then those 16 total ranges, mm-hmm. you know, check, check X, so on and so forth. Super simple math. Just four times four is 16 ranges that get to the river that get yep. split into four different decisions points. So that's 64 total trees which sounds like a lot and it actually technically is because you're not just splitting like one, like you're splitting your entire range of decisions. So let's say the opening range was 15% of hands. That's 160 some unique combinations that you're splitting into 64 different decision paths. And that's why these calculators are so powerful, but also very limited because 64 trees, while it sounds like a lot and it sounds very complex and it is to a human brain to, to like in the terms of what actual GTO should be. So what GTO should be is we don't just have three sizings. We have infinite sizings for every decision point. Every decision point should have unlimited sizings. But let's say we even like, we didn't even do unlimited because doing unlimited is kind of pointless. You did like near unlimited, which is just like, you split big blinds into like uh, like decimals, like a quarter of a big blind or whatever right. into every 
to every one. Then on the flop, you could have you could bet anything between the stone minimum, which would be one big blind, all the way up to whatever all in would be, and every single mm. one fourth increment in between. So then you'd need four hundred different. Fl- if you're playing hundred big blinds deep, you need yep. four hundred flop decisions. Then you need like you know three to four hundred turns, and then that would get split into anywhere between you know one hundred to four hundred river decisions, right? Which means that would be uh, it'd be tens of millions. 16, right? Yeah, it'd be like sixteen million different yeah. uh, trees. To me, that's how far away we are from true GTO. We're even like, we're even getting like. I think getting kind of close would be like twenty, twenty, and twenty. I think like that would be close enough to GTO that we could have a pretty good idea as to what's happening for the most part. That's eighty thousand trees. So right now, let's say I were to pull up Pio Solver, and so uh, through the group that I work with. Um, that I'm back and do coaching and stuff for, uh, we have a service setup. Most professional, like either pros or organizations or groups or whatever, they, we rent these servers that are really, really, really powerful to be able to run these programs. So this server has like 100, uh, 128 uh, gigabytes of RAM. Um, so it's really, really powerful, really high-end high end server, you know, lots of cores, all that stuff. And if I were to do a three, three, and three, or sorry, so three uh, sizing, so four, four, and four, so 64 total uh, decisions by the river. If I were to put that into Pio Solver and to run it, um, and also I would have uh, the out of positions check raise decisions, so it's technically a lot more than that, but we'll just ignore that. Um, to run this, uh, which I think is, it's pretty complex and it is pretty difficult for the computer to run this, It'll take like four to six hours for this high-end server, yeah. Um, yeah. something like that. And if I were try to to do the what I would want to be able to do, the 20, 20, and 20, I, it would take, I don't know, a year, more, longer. <laughs> right. It would take right. very, very long. It would, it would, you know, it'd be 15 or it would be, uh, yeah, it'd be like 1,500 times longer than that. Yeah. So it takes 6,000 hours to run. It, would take, it reminds you know, me of my, my, my corporate world days. I used to do stochastic analysis and we do that on, you know, to do our capital markets hedging right. stuff. And it'd be stochastic on stochastic on stochastic. And literally you need, you need the answer on what derivatives should I buy? You need to know the answer in 15 minutes and it would take right. you 12 hours to run the program. So a little bit of an issue. And so kind of the right. same thing here, the human brain. Okay. Well, okay. Here's my decision point. I'll get back to you in eight hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have that much time at the table. So these calculators, while they are super powerful, they're also very limited. So when people are worried about these like calculators taking over, whatever, it's not really a true worry. Um, And really these things, they're just, they're very cool tools that give us a vague insight into how these things should look. And the thing is, is while it only gives us a vague insight, the human brain comparatively is so simple that no, very few people play remotely close to even how a four decision tree should look like. Right. You know, very, very few. The only person that might come like remotely close is going to be someone like Limitless or like uh, Badziakowski or Bonomo or like some of the best, absolute best players on the planet might get a little bit close to it. And everyone else is just nowhere near. Like I am nowhere near. So touch even on that. I, so touching yep. that a little bit, kind of like just uh, so you know, we hear this. We're like, you know, as a recreational player, we're like, oh my god, I know that's out there, but I know we have to translate that just into basic concepts. So talk a little right. bit about how do we not get intimidated by that? I mean, because well, we know I'm not going to be playing up, you know, against Bond right. or, or you or Fader holds very mm-hmm. often, unless you know we just happen to stumble yeah. upon the same tournament, you know. But 
but I, I listen to them like, oh man, and maybe I have no hope at learning the game, but right. maybe just talk a, you know, a couple minutes on, okay, so as a recreational player, what do I take away from that? Then are, are there concepts, are there principles? Right. What do I do if I am not going to be renting Pios over mm. you know, to, to, to figure out, you know, what my three bet range should be here, you know, help us out, kind of translate that mm. into everyday Joe. That's one of like the best things about the game and also how good the human brain is at turning broad concepts into easily definitive and learnable things. Like for instance, something like, let's say I told you to drive to target and buy, you know, a loaf of bread. Like that's something that honestly to us is very simple because, you know, we're adults, we've got our driver's license, we have a vehicle, we've, you know, know how money works, all these things. You know, when you're like a three-year-old or five-year-old kid or whatever, if I told them to do that, they just wouldn't have a vague idea as to what I'm talking about. You know, but so, and if you really think about it, even something like that is arguably a very complex series of events. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, you need to know how to drive a car. You need to know where target is. You need to know how to operate the vehicle. You need to know what money is, how money works, how to use it, how to access it. And then you need to go through the process of entering the store and then When you enter the store, even just entering the store, your brain is inundated with all these different decision points. You know, all the advertising that's thrown at you, just every single, like just getting to there, you have infinite decisions that that your mind is making. But to you, you know, it's something, you know what you're doing. It's very simple. Mm -hmm. Like as a total broad concept, if you think about it, it is very, very in-depth and complex. And throughout the course of making those decisions and getting to the point of actually having the bread, going back, coming home, you know, it is ridiculously complex, way more complex than, you know, some simple poker decision. But the thing is, is our brains are very, very good at going, oh, it's, it's instead of it's, you know, all these infinite decisions, it's okay, I'm going to leave my house. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to drive to the target. I'm going to get the type of bread that I normally get. I'm going to spend money on it and come home. And you turn something that is ridiculously complex into something that is incredibly simple. Like, you know, if your wife told you to go get bread, you'd go get the bread. And on the way, you'd be like, do you need anything else? And then you'd come home. And that'd be it. You know, it's, it's simple. It's easy. But, you know, honestly, you just need to turn poker into that. And that's, that's the difficult thing is how do you turn poker into that? Well, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can join training sites and study and learn and such read all the books. And, eh, such as? Is there as a training site that you know poker. of? That exactly. Be? Learn pro poker. Learn pro. So one of the things is what these tools do is it helps people like me who have the time and inkling and effort and passion to grind them and study them and try to figure out what it's telling me. And then I am friends with a lot of other people who are very good at this stuff or even way better than me, you know, ridiculously better than me. Some of them are. So then I go to them and go, Hey, I don't really understand what it's telling me here. You know, what do you think it is? And then we discuss it and debate it and, you know, use other tools to try to figure out what it's trying to tell us. And then, you know, I've been coaching and playing the game for, you know, I've been playing the game professionally for I guess almost 11 years now and I've been coaching the entire length of it and I've coached players of all abilities. So I essentially go to this person or go to the calculator and I learn what it 
what concept it's trying to teach me, and then I just simplify it. And all of these concepts can, for the most part, be simplified to a reasonable degree, where someone who just has a desire and passion to learn can do so. You know, you might not be able to compete against the absolute elite players exactly on their level, but you can get good enough where they're not going to completely and totally crush you. And like that's that's the amount of information that's available and is easily accessible these days. Um, you know, most of the other training sites that teach GTO-based concepts and theories, they're pretty expensive. Sites like, you know, run it, uh, even like run it once, uh, 100 bucks a month is still on the more expensive side, although you get a very large database of information. But like Upswing, their most recent tournament course, I think is like 1000 or $1,200. Uh, Raise Your Edge is also like, 1400 bucks or 1200 bucks um and then uh fedor's recent poker code is also like 1400 bucks so there's a lot of like really good information out there that's also really expensive and then you have sites like uh like run at once and similar style sites that have these large databases of videos with a lot of information a lot of it is very very good but Waiting between the good information and bad information can be very difficult, especially because a video that is as new as two years old can have information that is very, very wrong in it or information that is just not anywhere near close to correct to be very useful. And on top of that, when you go to a site like that, you also get a lot of conflicting information. You know, you'll have players of different calibers telling you different things. Right. And some of it might be very good and useful for you in particular, and some of it might not be, and you're not going to be able to tell the difference between it. And that's like one of the biggest issues with uh, the inundation of information that's available these days is there's a lot of just not very good information that's out there. And some of the information that is confirmably very good is also very, very, very expensive, which is why I wanted to make Learn Pro Poker. It's because I wanted there to be good information that was well edited, well produced, uh, that was well structured, that was easy for someone to go through, find what they wanted to work on, and work on that one specific concept. So I've broken the site down into easy to use concepts. And any of the more broad theory things that I find to be very important and do super basic, straightforward videos and teach you and walk it through step by step by step by step. And because it's just me making the content, I'm not beholden to making X length of videos. I'm not beholden to making X number of videos per week or whatever. So when I'm making a video, it's because I think it is it has information that is worth learning and that it is useful. And that's why the videos on there take a lot of work by me. So most of the theory videos on there, they're between three minutes and 14 minutes. I wanted to make mm -hmm. the videos super accessible, easy to watch for pretty much anyone. And because they're on the more short side of things, that also means that I need to fill them with good information. So there's no filler. There's no random BS. It's just straightforward to the point, good information, which means that I spent many hours per video prepping that information, writing it, editing it down, rewriting it and making it, you know, cover all the information that I wanted it to cover without just extra stuff in there. So that means, uh, any of the longer videos, it's generally about three hours per minute of work. So a 10 minute video is going to be 30 plus hours of work for me on that specific video. And that might not even count the work I'm doing ahead of time into it to prepare the video. Like I might have, I might spend 50 to hundred hours studying a concept better. So then I can make, spend another 30 hours to make the video itself. 
So I try to make the content as accessible as possible. And like, while it is in depth and it is all very GTO based because I spent so many hours coaching and working with players of all abilities and all levels of knowledge and, and everything that I've done my best to simplify it as much as possible. So there's a best information I possibly have simplified as much as I can make it. And it reminds me of, uh, I think Abraham Lincoln was credited with saying, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short letter. It's kind of mm-hmm. one of those things, right? It, it actually, it takes longer to make a smaller or shorter video. Right. To simplify yeah. the concepts and theories and make them easily accessible. That's usually what I'm spending the most time on. Make Because we also do a lot of visual aids. And what while I just do basic examples of it, any of the visual aids that we have on there have been worked over by um, our editor who has a video marketing degree. So our editor, our full-time editor is an actual professional with, you know, videos, with design work, and then we'll outsource stuff as well to make sure that it is of high quality. So, you know, one of my biggest issues with some of the other sites that are out there is you can tell that the pros are just phoning it in. They're not passionate about it. They're not getting paid anywhere near enough. You know, I've made videos for Run It Once. I know how much they pay. And you do it more because you enjoy it and because you want to be associated with them, not because of, you know, the massive amounts of money they're paying you. Uh, And even something like Upswing. You know, Upswing paid Petrangelo a lot of money. But you can tell that he did it because he got paid a lot of money, not because he wanted to make the content. And I really enjoy teaching and making this content. I enjoy helping people get better. You know, one of my good friends and Learn Pro Poker members uh, a couple days ago, um, let's see, I guess it would have been, yeah, about a week ago, um, he won a circuit ring and $215,000. And, you know, helping someone achieve a dream and a goal of his and giving him a, you know, helping him achieve a $215,000 score, you know, that's why I do this stuff. And, you know, helping other, like, you know, when I make this content, I'm thinking back to when I was a 18 year old kid living in Brainerd, Minnesota, who had a dream of playing at the World Series. And I want that person to be able to access my content, afford it, learn it, use it and become a professional if that's what their goal is. Or if their goal is to just get a little bit better so they can crush their friends in home leagues and bars, then by all means, it's accessible and useful even for that. Because while I teach the GTO. I also teach you how to apply it in real situations, teach you the types of mistakes that people make, why these are mistakes, and then how we take advantage of it. And that's like my goal with, you know, when I'm teaching, not just, hey, turn you into a robot and get better, but teach you how to think about and approach the game. And I don't expect people to play the same style as I do or to all of a sudden become these super loose, hyper aggressive players but to just think better about the game. That really is always my goal at the site, is to help people think better about poker. And this is pretty good timing because it's Cyber Monday and there's a deal going on today. Yes. Uh, so you guys, uh, it's 30 bucks a month now on, on special. Yep. Uh, rather than 40 bucks a month, it's 305 that, bucks for an entire year, right? If it you ends in today. seven hours and 32 minutes. Seven day. hours. So which what time is that actually? Uh, 11.59 p.m. Pacific Standard Pacific Time. Pacific Time. So you got, you got till yep. 2 a.m. Tuesday here, folks, in Minnesota. Yep. But you can get out there. You go to learnpropoker.com directly. If you want to also support Rec Poker, we have a link to, uh, as an affiliate, we have, you can go to rec.poker. Rollings are just using their link. Um, they get... Uh, they get a credit for it for the life of your account. So you can just consistently help them via using their links. So definitely do so. 
Well, I appreciate that. So we're rec.poker slash LPP if you want to do the rec poker thing. But Ryan, I know you you don't have a lot of time left. We've mm-hmm. taken a lot of your time, but we had some questions from some of yep. our listeners. Are you willing Fire to uh, Let's a sure we'll go through them. We'll have to go through them pretty quick. Yep. Uh, but this first one's actually a little bit longer of a question, but you can do your best to answer pretty quickly. So yep. uh, Danny Schneider, who I actually just played with today, uh, he <laughs> said, he, you know, one of the things that he he works on is trying to figure out how do I how do I work through uh, tournaments that have fast blinds, which is yep. normally what a lot of us recreational players play. You know, it's five hour tournament kind of thing. So he has an approach where he kind of has this top five question strategy yep. approach that he asks himself on a regular basis. So he just kind of wants you to evaluate this and maybe give mm-hmm. him some some insight. So the questions that he asks himself: uh, What is my chip stack versus the average stack? In other words, can I be patient or do I have to make a move to stay ahead of the blinds? Um, is the table playing loose or tight? And I try to play the opposite of the current game style. Um, what's the minimum blind raise sizing? Uh, let's see. What minimum blind raise sizing does it take to get other players out of the hand? What players should I try to exploit? And what players should I try to avoid? So that's okay. kind of what he asks himself. So maybe you can uh, opine on that. Those are pretty reasonable questions. Um, I'm the stacked up is one of the most important things because stacked up pretty much entirely dictates your opening range. Uh, something that most people don't realize is in in tournaments and just in, in actually in all versions of the game, really. But for the most part, the shorter effective you are, the looser you can open. Most people think it's the opposite hmm. of that. They think yeah. the deeper you are, the you know the the looser you can open. But really, it's the shallower you are because as you get more and more shallow, your high Broadway hands go way up in value. So King Ten off at 100 big blinds in early position, absolute trash. Just muck it. Yep. But King 10 off at 30 big blinds in early position, yeah, that's an open. That's generally going to be an open because, you know, on 30 bigs or less, if you flop top pair, that's a good hand. You know, you don't have a lot of, you know, uh, your stack to pot ratio is very small, so you can open looser. So making sure you're opening loose enough is honestly one of the most important uh, things to make sure you're doing relative to the stacked up. Uh, we're at relative to money. Uh, that's the only time I really think about my stacked up relative to the other players. Isn't necessarily... Am I above or below average? I don't really care about that. But I care about that if I'm nearing the money and I'm well below average, but I can cash a high percentage of the time. So will the bubble, if will bubbling this tournament massively affect me? Generally, the shorter effective you are, the more likely you are to cash, the more the bubble matters. The deeper effective you are, the more you're just trying to accumulate, punish the bubble, and try to go for, you know, building a top three victory. You know, playing tournaments isn't always about winning. It's always about making the best financial decision that you possibly can. And sometimes the best financial decision you can means you tank as hard as possible and you go for that min cash. Um, so going thinking in terms of that will drastically help him out. Um, also, an easy, easy, easy way to get way better at turbo tournaments is get the program Snapshove by Max Silver. It is a Nash-based uh, mathematic calculator that shows you what different ranges look like based off the situation. Has a really good quiz program built in. It's like ten bucks a month and worth every cent if you play a lot of shorter stack tournaments. All right, good stuff. Um, Bao Vang asked. Um, she asked. Uh, what are your thoughts on rec players transitioning from the daily turbo tournaments to multi-day? Like, what are the what are the major things that should be uh, incorporated? Um, honestly, really just getting a better overall feel of medium and deeper stack opening ranges. You know, really, and like, you know, three-bet ranges and things like that. So just getting a better idea as to what deeper stack ranges should look like. Um, just being more willing to be patient and not really think about, 
you know, how long you're there for, or how long it's been since you've gotten X hand, but instead just focusing on decisions. You know, when you're playing uh, these turbos and these daily things, you're kind of just trying playing to win, you know, trying to have fun and that kind of stuff, which is very reasonable. And, you know, people even do that in the multi-day stuff too. But I would say as you make the transition to playing more and more seriously, then your focus should be less and less about making money and having good results and more about making good decisions and improving and working on your game. Really, that's like the best thing is that if you want to play more seriously and get better, you need to care less and less about the results and care far more about how well of decisions you're making, you know, how, you know, what your opening ranges look like and calling ranges and three bet and check raises and all this stuff that I've been talking about the entire time that you <laughs> actually know why you do everything yeah. that you do. And if you can't prove to yourself or prove to someone else why you do something, chances are you need to study it way better. So that's the main thing I would say is study a lot and just work hard on improving your game at and away from the table. That's what you can do. Great advice. And now here's, here's a series. Uh, some of these questions are from Chad McVean, who's another one of our Canadian yep. uh, fans. Uh, I think there's only two people that live in Canada and they're both part of the Rec Poker podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but here you go. So these will have to be pretty quick answers. Uh, uh, Chad asked if you're still associated with chip leader coaching and how much did working with chance help your game? Um, so chip leader coaching is kind of like wrapping up business. Um, they still do some stuff, but there's really only like, I think just chance and what their person left with it. Um, so I'm no longer working with them, but working with chance and like that group of coaches. So, uh, all the coaches in it, we had a, uh, just group chat where we'd all discuss hands and, you know, players like Joe McKeon and Ryan Lang and Simon Denman and Daniel Strelitz, chance himself, Alex Foxen, we'd all just be sending hands and talking and discussing pretty regularly and getting their input on decisions was definitely a very cool aspect of it. And definitely something that a lot of members that were in the site didn't really take advantage of, you know, through CLC was really a very cool idea um, and had a really interesting business plan, but unfortunately finding the right type of people to really take full advantage of it was a lot harder than what we or what chance and, john the founders thought would it would be which is unfortunate because i i really loved it i loved the idea of it i liked everything behind it It just ended up not really working out unfortunately okay um you're a proven winner of both nolam and holdem and plo does playing one help the other and do you recommend playing multiple variants yes definitely um so if you enjoy playing other game types i cannot more strongly encourage you to keep doing so and try to slowly improve at each one now the issue of you know slowly learning each other game is that if you try to learn them too evenly then you'll just become like a jack of all trades and a master of none quote unquote so generally what you want to do is you want to have one game that you're heavily focused on in terms of really improving and then a bunch of other games that you're slowly learning on the side because as you get really good at that one game, you'll it'll actually help you get better at the other games a lot faster. Uh, just the better understanding you have of the general theories that go into playing poker, like all the games technically work around the same concepts and theories. It's you know about really about two main well three main things. It's about range and range advantage. It's about position and it's about equity and equity denial. If you are very good at those three things and you're getting and you understand just the general structure of play of each of the games then you'll play them at a way higher level than if you don't understand those three main concepts to an extreme in-depth degree and it's much easier to understand them at at one game type and then 
add them to to the other games versus not really learning that at all in any of them. So I would say definitely yes, but you want to focus on one. Awesome. One one last question. We can't get to all of them. Um, but Chad also said this as part of a, a compliment slash question, I guess. But he says, uh, there's a lot of trash talk in poker Twitter. <laughs> Maybe you've heard one or two. Uh, yeah. how, how do you maintain such a positive presence? Uh, Chad, Chad's very active on Twitter. And he says, I've not mm-hmm. heard a negative thing said about you. So how do you do it? So when I was a younger lad, I got a lot more into <laughs> okay, those. Okay, uh, okay. The twelve-year-old kind of says, "When I was yeah. a younger lad." Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when I was younger, like I would like ego battle and that type mm. of stuff with people all the time. You know, do these chat wars and whatever bullshit. And there just there wasn't anything productive about it, and I wasn't like getting anything from it. You know, it'd make me feel better about running bad or whatever BS, but it wouldn't. You know wasn't a positive thing at all. And, you know, when I stopped focusing on my results and started focusing about just who I was as a player and as a person, then it became much easier for me to just ignore most of that stuff. You know, I'm still willing to call people out on their, on their stuff, but I'm going to call them out on being unethical about, you know, supporting shitty companies about stealing money or lying to people or stuff like that. That I will always publicly call people out on on their shit. And I think it's really important that we as a community are willing to do that. You know, it's so easy in poker for someone to build a brand and a name and then to use that to just take advantage of people. Um, And, you know, that stuff I'm willing to like go to war and throw down over. But, you know, if it's about someone being, you know, a bad player or whatever, I'm not going to, you know, call them out or say anything about it or whatever, really. Um, I think it's far more important to just focus on yourself and focus on becoming a better person and player than it is about, you know, some ego war with someone. Yeah. I I was giving a sigh of relief that you weren't going to call me out for being a bad (laughs) player. So I was very (laughs) relieved to hear that. Well, that's great. No, I think that's a great credit to who you are Mm -hmm. uh, as well. I mean, Chad is very active in the poker community and stuff too, and he's uh, that's, that's an important question from him. So, all right, we'll wrap up here. I know we're at time. Uh, we said 45, you said you'd give us more. We took it. Uh, we grabbed <laughs> hold of it like a dog with a bone. Uh, Jim, did you have anything you wanted to add in there? Only that, uh, I, my name's not in my Twitter handle, but Ryan and I have descri- uh, discussed several hands over the years and, uh, I've always found him to be extremely welcoming and engaging and open-minded and willing to share very generous with his time and his expertise. And that, uh, is, you know, he's a great follow. So potential MN, if uh, you're not following him already, you really must. And I love this new format you're using to describe hands at histories where you go sort of threading street uh, by polls. street with the yeah. results. I'd love to know uh, another time when we have more time, I'd love to talk to you more about that format and how effective you found it to be. But thanks for coming. This has been great. Thanks for having me. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So any, any last comments or any make, make sure everybody knows where to find you. You got the, yep. so potential MN is, yep. is sort of your personal Twitter and then learn pro poker is the, the business one, do you have one or favorite over the other? Or should people just follow both or? Just follow both. Um, learn The Learn, learn Pro Poker accounts more about just like site updates and company updates and things okay. like that. Um, uh, speaking of which, so tonight you got a bit over seven hours to get into our uh, last second deal for Cyber Monday, 30 bucks a month. We're normally 40 a month, so you get 10 bucks off a month. And if you sign up for that 30 a month, you will keep it for the life of the account. And we're also doing a yearly special that's uh, – $25 and 40 cents a month. It's like 305, buy, right? For the year. Yeah, if you, 305 for the year. So if you sign up for the year and you keep that, you will keep it for the life of the account. 
Um, so when we're doing these deals, we're, they're not just for a month or for X. You can get them for the life of the account. And one of the other reasons why you're going to want to sign up today is we are doing a $10,000 buy-in main event competition Whoa. where the winner will get a stake into a $10,000 buy-in event this summer in Las Vegas. Um, we are not associated with Caesars or WSOP in any way, shape, or form, but it is to a $10,000 buy-in event this summer in Las Vegas. Um, and it comes with $1,000 of travel money. And the stake will not just be some piddly stake. It will be straight 50-50 stake. So we will essentially buy you in at 2.0 markup, a uh, type of markup that is saved for elite professionals. Essentially, that's it. So if you cash for fifteen grand, you pocket 7500 bucks straight up. Um, and in order to compete, you just need to be a paying member of Learn Pro Poker. And that uh, competition is starting this Thursday is the very first event. The way the competition works is we're doing five months of leagues. So going back to my days of playing college poker with my friends, yeah, we're bringing that back. Uh, the top 20 qualifiers each month will qualify into the finals. Uh, so we'll have five months of leagues where top 20 qualify. Um, can't qualify twice, so there will always be 100 total qualifiers. Uh, 100 qu total qualifiers will play a weekend of tournaments in May. There'll just be four tournaments that they'll play over a weekend. The top eight will make the finals, and the winner will get the stake. So we're making it a skill-based competition where pretty much anyone can compete pretty easily. should be very easy to qualify if that's your desire. And the way we're doing the games is we're doing the games Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. And, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, so four nights a week. And it'll shift week to week for the time zone. So I think they'll start at like 4 p.m. Eastern and 8 p.m. Eastern. So it'll shift week to week. And, you know, that way it's pretty easy for pretty much anyone to be able to participate. And chances are, even if you can only participate half the time, you should be able to qualify if that's what your goal is. So if you ever had a dream of playing in a $10,000 buy-in event, I think we're making that very, very accessible. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, oh, uh, something else to come with the site that I'm actually, the reason why I'm busy and going to be done with this in a sec is uh, when you do become a member, you get access to our weekly group coaching sessions. They're two hour long coaching sessions where people send in you know, questions and hands and whatever. And I give full in-depth, no holds bar review. And you know, it's not just a webinar. It's not just covering whatever. It's direct interaction with me two hours in length and if you can't attend them in person you can email me questions and hands ahead of time and i will answer them you know during it and it gets recorded and uploaded to the site so very easy way to get full access to me um and the competition i think is a really cool thing we're the only training site that's ever ever offered something like this and i really think it's a cool way to help others achieve a goal like that, playing an event like that, competing at that level and making it very accessible as well. So thank you very much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. I had a wonderful time and can't wait for the next time to be on. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have you on again if you're willing, Ryan. So you can definitely, we got, we got a few things we got to take care of housekeeping. You're willing to, you're, you're, you can stay on if you want or just sign off there, but uh, we'll be in touch either way. But right. thank you again, Ryan. Thanks Jim Reed for jumping on here. A reminder this Wednesday, two days from now, 6.30 PM central time. If you're a member of the rec poker community, you can join us for one of our great hand history discussions. Uh, we have a great time talking through hands that have been recorded and kind of breaking those down. And that is recorded and made back available to uh, members. And then 8 o'clock Central is our home game, Poker Stars home game. Uh, all the de details on that, rec.poker slash home game. Uh, and you can get all the information on how to sign up to be part of that Poker Stars 
group and uh, win some fabulous prizes. Uh, we give away three copies of the Andrew Brokus book, uh, Playing Optimal Poker. Andrew's been nice enough to donate prizes for the three winners each month through the rest of 2019. So this is the last chance to win that. But just go to rec.poker. Everything is out there. If it's not out there, reach out to me uh, or whoever that you know that's involved with rec poker, and we can answer any of the questions. If you want to do us a favor and you want to get a part of Learn Pro Poker, if you want to get into a, that membership Ryan was talking about, go to rec.poker slash LPP or just find it in the menu and you can uh, use that link to sign up for his site that actually supports us as well because we are an affiliate of Ryan. But if you want to do us more favors, like us, rate us, review us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, wherever you're listening or watching this, that would be great. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. Tell whoever you want. Uh, let other people know about it, about us. But uh, special thanks again to our official sponsor, Running Aces Racetrack and Casino, as well as our newest sponsor, uh, Learn Pro Poker. So with that, uh, we will sign off. Uh, thanks, Jim. Uh, we'll we'll touch base with you. Uh, touch base with you soon. All right, everybody, take care.